Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. It is just me today talking about the rest of the Benedict the Sixteenth book, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week. Kevin was going to join me, but uh, this coronavirus thing, um, in addition to uh, inflicting a terrible toll on the life and health of many people around us, has I think also just disrupted the work workflow and general pattern of life for so many of us as well. And uh, I'm no exception to that. Kevin's no exception to that. Kevin, actually, the reason he couldn't join us today is because he has been tasked by his employer to lead a, uh, a coronavirus uh, kind of response uh, strategy group. And so he is um, he's away doing that, and uh, I'm grateful to him for helping craft response strategies like that. In addition, I'm very grateful, most especially to healthcare providers and other folks who are trying to keep critical services going at this very difficult time. Hopefully you um, went back a couple episodes ago and listened to the audio book that I released, uh, Alphonsus Liguori's Uniformity with God's Will. It's really good. Uh, not the podcast. I mean, the podcast is just my voice. So, you know, make of that what you will. But the book itself is really good. And I think it's a really important listen for us in times like this. It's very difficult. Uh, in fact, tempting. Uh, it's tempting to live in times like this and wonder what God is up to wonder what he's doing, to ask where he is. Um, our parish is live streaming masses uh, during this time, and our, uh, our, um, one of our priests this morning gave the homily and said it's, it's, uh, it's tempting to ask where God is in this. Uh, we have to trust. We have to hope. We have to exercise the virtue of hope. And we have to recognize that whatever God is allowing to happen is not outside of his divine will doesn't mean that it's in his active will, right? God is not inflicting uh, the, the evil around us, but God does allow the evil around us so that greater good can come of it, uh, so that he may be glorified, so that souls may be saved, so that people may turn to him, etc. And so in addition, in addition to praying for the people on the front lines of this, healthcare workers most especially, in addition to praying for people who have the virus that they would be healed, of all their infirmities and delivered from bodily death. I think we can also pray for, first of all, hope and trust that we can hope in what God has planned for us, that we can trust in his love. And we can also pray that his purposes will be achieved, that people might look around us at this, uh, what is, I think, at least for many people, many people who don't have hope and trust in God. It's a very scary time. And we can pray that those people will look around, see this scary stuff, and get their butts back in the church pew, right? Um, to recognize that there is something more, to repent and believe in the gospel. I think we can also pray for the unity of Christians everywhere. This is an opportunity for the church to show its witness, to demonstrate that it is not afraid of bodily death, that's not to say that it will be reckless in the face of an epidemic. I mean, I, you know, there's a, there's a good reason why the American church has 
has uh, gone along with epidemiologist epidemiologist recommendations for social distancing, canceling public masses, things like that. Those are all um, good and necessary and prudent things for a time. Uh, but the church also has an opportunity here to to refuse to bow to the fear of death, to declare that God has something greater in store, to declare that bodily death is not the greatest of all possibly possible evils, but rather. Uh, the handing of a soul over to Satan is the greatest of all possible evils. And um, and so we can pray pray for the church as well. Pray for the unity of Christians to that end, that, that the witness of Christ through his church would be unanimous in professing our belief in Christ, our trust in God, and our hope for um, our hope for eternal life. With that opening, uh, let's go on to talk about Benedict the Sixteenth's wonderful book here. Uh, I was going to do two more episodes on this, but I think it makes more sense now to just condense it to one, given that, uh, one, our schedule has been a little bit uh, adjusted by the uh, circumstances of COVID-19, and uh, and two, that I'm releasing this just after Passion Sunday, Palm Sunday is coming up, and then Holy Week shortly thereafter. Um, and so I think it makes more sense to just get this uh, get this discussion completed tonight, and then we can focus on some Holy Week programming um, next week as, as well. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and talk about this wonderful book, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week. What I'm going to do, uh, first of all, I'll try to keep this short, but I want to emphasize some important things here. And so, our last conversation, Kevin and I talked about chapters one through four. There are uh, nine chapters and then a brief epilogue. So, today I'm going to talk about chapters five through nine, but I have notes so that I stay on track. And what I'm going to do is just tease out one or two really important things that especially struck me when reading each chapter, and we can talk about that. So chapter five begins with the Last Supper. Let's pick up there. All right. So the Last Supper, obviously a very important, uh, pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. This is the institution of the Eucharist. If you uh, if you regularly pray the rosary, you'll know that this is the last of the luminous mysteries. Uh, an absolutely beautiful mystery to meditate on the institution of the Holy Eucharist, which is the Last Supper. And when Benedict starts this chapter, what he does is say that we have to understand the Last Supper in the context of the cross. He says the cross is the reality that shapes Jesus' entire message, not just here in the Last Supper, in the room with the disciples, but actually his entire ministry writ large. And uh, I'm also reading Fulton Sheen's book, Life of Christ, which it's the first work by Sheen that I've read, um, and it's really, really good so far. I highly recommend. But in the beginning, Sheen says that Jesus is the first man whose whose entire life uh, has been shaped by his death, that the cross actually casts a shadow all the way back to the birth and over the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the cross that shapes his his private life and his public ministry. And that's that's essentially what Benedict is saying here as well. We have to view the cross through the lens of the Last Supper and the Resurrection, um, and when we do that, it helps us understand the cross as the most radical expression of God's unconditional love. Similarly, we have to view the Last Supper in the light of the cross, and when we do that, we see it more as as more than a communal meal, but actually as uh, a presentation of the Paschal sacrifice. And so, uh, so then with that, he dives into the actual words of the text, and I think this is especially uh, especially important, compelling for a Catholic to read an exegesis of the actual words of consecration because to us those words are so important when i was a protestant and and i, I understand this is not unanimously uh, the case uh, across protestantism but when i was a protestant when i was um 
uh, when I was sort of outside of Anglicanism, the words of consecration were not the central focus. The central focus was that uh, the, the congregation was breaking bread together. The, it was important that there was a, a minister up at the front of the church, that the minister would consecrate the elements, would do, a, would do so in the pattern of what the scriptures say. But the most important thing, at least to my eyes, was that the congregation was doing it together, that it was uh, you know, gathering in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of the prayers, as the, the Acts of the Apostles says. Um, but the Catholic tradition has obviously placed, placed great emphasis on the actual words of scripture, the words of consecration. And so Benedict goes and talks about that here as well. Now, there are some, some differences in form. Paul and Luke have one, one form, and Matthew and Mark have another. Uh, specifically, Paul and Luke use the word Eucharistia, which is about thanksgiving. Mark and Matthew use the word um, eulogia, uh, where we get today's eulogy, but uh, eulogia is praise. The bottom line here is both of these conform to the Berica, which is the traditional Jewish prayer of thanksgiving and blessing over the meal. And so the, the consecration that Jesus gives is both a Eucharist, a, a song of praise and thanksgiving to the Father. And Benedict says the church has understood the words of consecration not simply as a kind of quasi-magical command, right? This is not, so for example, actually, uh, you may have heard the term hocus pocus, uh, as in like referring to magic. Hocus pocus is a uh, contraction and really a corruption, but a contraction corruption of the um, the words of consecration in Latin. Uh, hoc, hoc est item corpus, I believe, is the, this is my body. Um, so hocus pocus is a contraction and corruption of that poking fun at the, uh, the phrase that the church would use, especially in the middle ages, but all the way up through, um, when Latin mass was no longer the norm. And obviously it's still said in the, uh, in the, in the TLM mass, the traditional Latin mass. Um, but it was a, it was poking fun at the church because the idea was the church has this magical formula that it pronounces over the elements and then declares that it is now the, the body and blood of Christ. Well, the church has never said that. <laughs> the church has never declared it to be a quasi-magical thing. And Benedict is saying exactly the opposite here. Rather, the church, I'm quoting Benedict, now says this, uh, quote, as part of her praying in and with Jesus, as a central part of the praise and thanksgiving through which God's earthly gift is given to us anew in the form of Jesus's body and blood, end quote. And then I think it's also important here to recognize the significance of the breaking of bread. And I've always loved this part in the mass when the priest actually literally breaks the bread uh, and, and holds it up for, for all to behold. So the breaking of bread does a couple of things. One, it signifies God as father, because that would be a function of the father at the Jewish table, the head of the family, to break the bread and distribute it. I think maybe the best uh, the best uh, comparison in our modern era would be think about when you're at family Thanksgiving and grandpa gets to carve the turkey, right? It's a function of the head of the family to do that, just as it was a function of the head of the family to break the bread for his family uh, in Jesus's era. Uh, so the so there's the breaking of the bread and there's the actual distribution. The distribution then, of course, would signify the fundamental caritas of the Eucharist, that it's not just broken, but it's broken up for you. It's distributed to us, uh, symbolizing the love, uh, the way that Jesus pours himself out in the Eucharist. And the actual breaking itself, in addition to signifying God as Father, also anticipates, in the case of the Last Supper, or represents, in the case of the Mass, the Paschal sacrifice as Jesus' body was literally broken on the cross at the crucifixion for us. So that's Benedict's, uh, that's Benedict's reflection on the Last Supper, or rather, I guess that's my 
my kind of summary and and reaction and reflection on only a part of what he wrote in that chapter, but there's there's a lot more that I don't have time to get into. Chapter six, Gethsemane, uh, really interesting here. I think my favorite part is is when. Um, well, let me back up. I've always loved the idea about how uh, creation begins in the garden and ends in a city with the the descent of the New Jerusalem in the Book of Revelation. There is a there's an overarching meta narrative that guides us from uh, God's creation in a garden in Genesis all the way through our filling the earth and subduing it uh, and building the city of God, the true city of God, the new Jerusalem in the book of revelation. Well, it turns out that that shadow of Eden is represented here in ways that I hadn't fully thought about before. The first way is Gethsemane. Gethsemane is also a garden John uses that word very explicitly, the same word to describe the Garden of Eden. So there's a clear parallel drawn between those two things. However, also, Jesus is crucified in a garden. If you look at John chapter 19, the place is described as a garden. And in that garden where Jesus is crucified, there's a tomb where no one has has ever been buried. And that's, of course, where Jesus is buried. So we have the original corruption of the natural order occurring in a garden. And then we have the... uh, the you know betrayal of Jesus in a garden, and we have the crucifixion in a garden, and because Jesus is buried in that same garden in the tomb where no one has been buried before, we obviously have the resurrection happen in the garden. So you know, just like the the Old Testament type, typology of Mary as the new Eve, Jesus as the new Adam, etc., we also have the garden of the crucifixion as the new Garden of Eden. It's in the first garden that our relationship with God is broken by the first Adam's pridefulness and desire to be like God. It is in the second garden that we face our true deliverance, where our relationship with God is restored because of the second Adam, that is Jesus, the greater Adam, because of the second Adam's willingness to not actually take on what is proper to him. It wouldn't even be prideful for him to you know, want to exercise the awesome power of God and to deliver himself. Um, that would totally be his prerogative to do because he is God, but rather he denies himself, just like he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. He denies himself. He takes up his cross. He abandons his will totally to the will of the father. That's really, really powerful to me. And and seeing it in that parallel, I think is incredible. Now, I think we need to talk about this idea of wills a little bit because it's pretty complicated, but in the prayer in Gethsemane, when Jesus is really wrestling with the hour that is approaching, he's sweating blood. He is in this, you know, agony-ridden prayer to the Father, asking that this, that this cup may pass from him. He then utters the words, "Nevertheless, not not my will, but Thy will be done." That is a really powerful example of the two wills of Jesus. And here, I want to offer a little bit of a history lesson. Some of this is in is in uh, Benedict's book. Actually, a lot of it is. Um, and he, But he, he, he offers a kind of brief overview summarizing some of the key Christological heresies and debates in the first five centuries of the church. So let's first talk about what, what is true. Jesus has two wills. He has his natural will, which resists, in the case of the Gethsemane prayer, resists the looming specter of his death um, and, and pushes back, asks for the chalice to pass from him. But then he has his filial will, and that's the will that abandons, abandons itself totally to the Father's will. Um, that would be the, the divine will. 
So he has his, his natural and divine will, uh, or, the, or the filial will. Now, the, counts, the council of um, Chalcedon confirmed that there was only one person of the Son of God, not two. Um, and that one person has a human nature and a divine nature, each without confusion and without separation. Now, here we need some church history. After Chalcedon, so Chalcedon, I think, was 451 A.D., some churches split from Rome and Byzantium. So this is not the this is not the Orthodox Catholic split that we often talk about as the Great Schism. This is actually the uh, Chalcedonian split, in which uh, what are now called the Oriental Orthodox churches um, uh, left the uh, left Rome and Byzantium, now the Catholic and Orthodox churches, over a disagreement here. Um, Alexandria embraced monophysitism and said, "No, Jesus did not have two natures." Uh, there was only a divine nature. Uh, and Damascus, or Syria, rejected the notion of one person and said, no, actually, there are two persons within, uh, within Jesus himself. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's a, the human person and the divine person. But Chalcedon defined one person, two natures. Um, after that, within Rome and Byzantium, there arose a second debate uh, that is referred to as, uh, uh, or the, the second erroneous idea that was referred to as, or is referred to as uh, monothelitism. And monothelitism rejects the two wills of Jesus, arguing that a person cannot possibly have two wills because the natural will would necessarily be subsumed within and annihilated by the divine filial will. So the idea in monothelitism is that Jesus couldn't have had these two wills because given the infinite, uh, the infinite nature of the divine will, the divine will would necessarily overpower, subsume, annihilate, insert your word here, but essentially uh, obviate entirely uh, the natural will. Now, there's this Eastern theologian in Maximus the Confessor who engaged on this question and basically said, look, not so fast. We can have an idea of these two natures, and Jesus, in fact, did have two natures, but but your, mis- your misunderstanding how the, the the natural will and the divine will interact. The natural will is not destroyed by the divine will precisely because the natural will, in the case of Jesus, the perfect man, the natural will is oriented entirely to the divine will. And I'm thinking here of Alphonsus Liguori's uniformity with the will of God, right? We need to, as now as people, I'm, I'm talking about you and me, not not uh, God incarnate, but you and me need to unite our natural will. And by the way, we only have one will. We need to unite our natural will to the divine will of God. Jesus himself is a perfect example of the uniting of those two wills, right? Distinct, uh, but united. Jesus has his natural will and and the filial will. And the reason why the natural will is not destroyed by the filial will is that the natural will is totally oriented um, correctly to the divine will. And Maximus said, "This is actually, this is exa- this is actually exactly right, because we do find our ultimate fulfillment in the divine will. This is exactly what we've talked about before on this podcast as well, right? How do we find perfect freedom in Christ? We find perfect freedom in Christ by becoming a servant of Christ, by orienting our entire lives uh, and wills, souls, and bodies toward Christ. We become truly free. It opens up the possibilities for us to be as God fully intends to be truly free in a way that we we cannot we cannot we cannot otherwise be. So um, that I think is a, a really um, powerful way of thinking about this. A rightly ordered human will is one that is fully attuned with God's will, and we have Maximus the Confessor for uh, to thank for that really uh, healthy 
understanding of how those two interact in the person of Jesus, uh, one person, two natures. All right, chapter seven is about the trial of Jesus, and I think this is um, this is another a really interesting chapter. My commentary on on it is going to be a little bit shorter, but um, you know, the person of Pontius Pilate has already always been a kind of um, pathetic, but maybe also sympathetic figure to me. He is clearly a pragmatist. You don't become a governor in the Roman Empire without uh, being certainly that. Uh, he's a man of his time. But there's something about the person of Jesus that I think grips him in a way that maybe he doesn't even fully understand. But we have the evidence of him. We have this sort of uh, this very interesting dialogue with Jesus when Pilate asks him what is truth. And I'll get to that in a second. But we also have him, you know, saying something like, Ece homo, here is the man, presenting him to the Jewish people. And there's something about those words, here is the man, that it, that I think carries more weight than uh, simply, you know, here is the here is the criminal or something. I mean, he's he's almost holding up Jesus as the representative man of the human race who's suffering for the human race. And then finally, the example of Jesus instructing his people to put a sign that says the king of the Jews. And the Jews push back and say, no, 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 say, say, have the sign say, this man says he's the king of, the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. So, uh, you know, Pilate still allows Jesus to be condemned to death. Uh, you know, I think you might say he actively condemns him to death, but at the very least, he passively condemns him to death, right? And so Pilate does certainly share a part of the blame here, his, his inaction, his weakness, his, uh, his pathetic um, lack of courage certainly dooms Jesus here. But at the same time, there's something about Pilate that I've always found fascinating and compelling in a way that I haven't uh, felt about, for example, Caiaphas or Judas Iscariot or something like that. There seems to be a level of internal conflict within the person of Pilate that um, that other characters simply don't have, and and that's what I think about when I see, when I read this dialogue between Pilate and Jesus at the trial himself. Pilate says, "So you are a king," and this is John chapter eighteen. Jesus responds, "You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice." End quote. So here Jesus does not deny his kingship to Pilate, of course, but what he does is he redefines the locus. So where Pilate, again, the pragmatic Roman governor, Pilate thinks a king is going to have a lot of earthly followers. Those, you know, he'll probably have an army. He'll have some means to enforce the, the, uh, the things that he wants to do and protect the territory that he claims. Jesus is saying, that's not about kingship, but rather kingship is about declaring and bearing witness to the truth. Now, of course, that leads Pilate to ask the very natural question, what is truth? And I think, again, this is where I kind of resonate with Pilate. This question is the same one, essentially, that has been asked by philosophers since even long before Pilate. What is truth? Pilate is, I think, giving, giving echo, or he's echoing, the cry of so many people who have looked at a complicated world for themselves, wrestled with complicated questions, and not known what to take away from it. And I think, um, yeah, I think I, I sympathize with Pilate because it is such a central question, and I sense his angst in asking this. Now, I say that. I wasn't there for the conversation, obviously. It's possible that Pilate said it in a dismissive sort of way. What is truth? Uh, you know, truth means nothing. Uh, and that, that could be something that a pragmatic Roman governor could be, right? Truth is what I say it is. I define my own truth. I control people 
via the truth. Uh, truth is nothing more than a vehicle for the power of the state to enforce its will and protect itself. And all that's all that's very possible. But I think there's a deeper internal dialogue going on in the mind of Pilate. I think he's asking more authentically, what is truth? And I think it's remarkable that he allows, or he directs, actually, it's more than allowing, he directs this sign to be placed at the foot of the cross that says, Jesus, King of the Jews. There's something about what Jesus says to him. There's something about the way that Jesus redefines the locus of his kingship, the focus of his kingship that resonates with Pilate. Now, of course, Pilate's not courageous enough to stop the crucifixion, but I think it resonates with him nonetheless. So let's just talk briefly about this truth thing. Benedict has a, has a nice uh, paragraph where he talks about Thomas Aquinas's definition of truth. Aquinas, channeling these scholastics, says that truth is conformity between the intellect and reality. In other words, uh, truth is uh, when the mind believes what is real. And that's, that's, that's true as far as it goes, but that's not the kind of first definition of truth, which Aquinas later provides in the Summa when he says, uh, God is ipsa summa et prima veritas. That is, God is truth itself, the highest and first truth. So truth is not simply about... Uh, about you know conformity between the intellect and natural reality or statements of fact alone, but uh, truth is fundamentally about conformity between the intellect and God uh, because it's that conformity, or I should say uniformity, really. It's that uniformity that uh, allows us to understand reality as it absolutely is rather than simply as we apprehend it to be with our five senses. And I think this is a, a really important thing to remember, um, just to temper all of our all, all of our understanding, all of our finitude. Maybe again, in the backdrop of COVID nineteen developments, we can do the best that we can to model uh, epidemiology patterns um, and virus spreads and transmission rates and R naughts and all of those things. Um, and all of those efforts are good and true. But none of those efforts, as, as much as they can tell us about the virus, as much as they can tell us about how many people uh, might or might not die and what types, what types of measures will and will not be effective in curbing the spread, uh, all of those things are good to find out. All of those things are, are noteworthy and praiseworthy to do and necessary. But none of those things can answer the question, why? And you know, the, the first question of reality as it, as it approaches the virus, as it approaches really any question of human suffering is fundamentally about why um, to to apprehend an answer to that question we have to approach god we have to approach god through the sacraments of the church we have to approach god through through prayer and i think that's important to remember in this time okay chapter 8 is on the cross obviously the central um, event up to this point in Jesus' life, uh, eclipsed only by the resurrection, of course, um, subsequent to this. But the cross is one of the central elements of in all of history, um, seriously. And uh, this is especially the case in Lent, of course, where we're journeying with Jesus to the cross. Hopefully we're doing devotions like Stations of the Cross, contemplating on the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. And again, looking to history to see how far back the cross casts its shadow, Benedict finds, uh, obviously, prophecies in the book of Isaiah, talking about the crucifixion. Uh, the Book of Wisdom, chapter 2, talks pretty specifically about the crucifixion. And then very interestingly, a non-scriptural source, if you look at Plato's Republic, and Benedict mentions this, uh, in Book 2 of the Republic, 
Glaucon is talking about what would happen if a truly just man were to come to earth. And he describes this in detail, says he'd be, you know, scourged, he'd be whipped, and ultimately he'd be crucified, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, centuries before the death of Jesus, Plato is effectively uh, being a secular prophet and discussing uh, what would happen if a truly just man came to earth um, or was on earth and, and didn't deserve to get what would happen. Glaucon says, no, he would be crucified. Now, what's all about this crucifixion? Um, lots of things we could talk about, uh, but just just briefly to mention a few things that Benedict emphasizes. Paul, we already talked about this word helasterion in the first podcast on this book. This word is translated roughly to expiation, uh, or the Hebrew word kaparet, which is the covering on the Ark of the Covenant where the blood of the sacrificed bulls would be sprinkled to make atonement for the people. So that atonement is now replaced and supplanted by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. The crucified Jesus, Paul says, is the helasterion, the expiation for our sins. We don't need the blood of animals anymore. It's no longer through the blood of animals that we're reconciled to God, but now it is through the passion of the Lamb of God. This is why we say, Ecce Agnus Dei in Mass, Behold, the Lamb of God. And by the way, Pilate's Ecce Homo, I think, has distinct echoes of the Ecce Agnus Dei that we hear every uh, in the Mass, every Eucharist. So it's through the passion of the Lamb of God that we are united with him. And the greatness and infiniteness of Christ's sacrifice means that we are actually taken up into him. Thomas Aquinas has, a, has this beautiful form, formulation in the Summa where he says, one drop of Christ's blood would be enough to atone all the world of its sins. And I think that's that's an absolutely remarkable way of thinking about it. I mean, if you want to get down to, to, uh, to you know the 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 technical the technicalities of the metaphysics, one molecule will be enough because precisely because God is infinite, and when God sacrifices Himself in the form of Jesus as the Lamb of God, that sacrifice is infinite and wipes away all of the sins of the world for all of time, for all of eternity. Really remarkable way of, of thinking about that. And because that's the case, when we are taken up into Christ, we are truly part of his body. We're truly united with him and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. This is why I love the idea of infused grace as opposed to the reformed uh, insistence on imputed grace. Grace is not something that simply assigns to us like an accountant would move money from balance sheet A to balance sheet B, but rather the righteousness of Christ is something that actually becomes our own. Infused to me brings to mind, you know, an IV when we're hooked up to an IV and have, you know, uh, hydration, uh, water just directed, injected directly into us to keep us hydrated. That's what infused grace is about. The, the water becomes ours through an IV Christ's grace becomes ours through the sacraments, but it actually becomes ours. It doesn't just simply, um, you know, clothe us with a with a white robe. Uh, it actually becomes ours um, as we are united to Him, and that's what the crucifixion is all about. And then the final thing on this crucifixion is that the crucifixion is a historical fact, but it's also a call to all of us to crucify to be crucified to Christ every day. I mean, just as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. It is our job to also be crucified with Christ. And how do we do that? 
uh, a number of ways, uh, primarily baptism. Uh, Just like the old baptismal fonts in ancient churches would be shaped like a tomb or a coffin, uh, when we go into baptism, we die to sin and rise to new life in Christ. That's how we're, that's primarily how we're crucified with him. But it also means embracing all of the inconveniences of the day uh, and offering it up to God as a living sacrifice. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 12 when he says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Um, this is our, this is our job to do. Uh, Paul, again, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, talks about being poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering um, for for the church, united with the sacrifice of Christ. That's our job. The highest form of this is, is obviously martyrdom, being a martyr. I just read a beautiful story. I can't speak to the veracity of it. I mean, it's the internet, right? But I read a beautiful story about a priest in Italy who offered up his ventilator. He was obviously sick with COVID-19, severe pneumonia, et cetera, but he offered up his ventilator to someone else who didn't have one he died as a result of not having a ventilator. But that is a form of martyrdom, just like Maximilian Kolbe saying to the guards in the concentration camp at Auschwitz, take me instead. Uh, that is a form of martyrdom. That is a form of crucifixion, being crucified with Christ in the truest sense of the word. Um, and this idea goes all the way back even to the ancient church. If you look at the narrative from the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, you'll read the narration of him being burned at the stake. Uh, and the the narration there describes how his how how the aroma took on the odor of incense again this idea of a sacrifice uh, to god being united with christ and his sacrifice being crucified with christ and that's one thing we can take away from the crucifixion narrative and then finally the resurrection and the ascension so benedict observes that the christian faith stands or falls with the truth of the testimony that christ is risen from the dead this is absolutely correct i taught an apologetics course last semester at my church and this was one of the the hotly debated topics right how do we know jesus rose from the dead but benedict's right if he rose from the dead then we 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 better be following him if he didn't rise from the bed we are from the dead we are wasting our time this idea, uh, I think last Easter or two Easter's ago, the head of Union Theological Seminary, which is not really a theological seminary anymore, but the head of the head of a Union Theological Seminary wrote a piece about how the resurrection was um, not a literal event, but you know, a spiritual or metaphorical event. Whatever that means, it, it's completely an incoherent idea. Uh, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're wasting our time. If the resurrection did happen, we better double down. Um, and so Benedict's absolutely right. Now, he, he spends some time talking about the empty tomb in, 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 my, in my apologetics course, and I think I'll talk about this in a future episode. Uh, there are basically four, four facts that point to the truth of the resurrection narrative, and one of those is about the empty tomb. There was apparently an empty tomb. Uh, this, is attest, this is attested to by, obviously, the scriptural accounts, but also by other non-scriptural um, uh, historical accounts, um, including, I think, Jos- Josephus. Um, but Benedict's right in saying, look, even if there was an empty tomb, that doesn't prove the resurrection. And I, and I think anybody who says that would be absolutely correct. I, I would acknowledge that. Just because the tomb is empty doesn't mean that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, however, however, if we're going to say that Jesus rose from the dead, and we're going to mean it in the way that we do, rather than the way that this Union Theological Seminary person does, <laughs> if we mean that there was a physical bodily resurrection, we better also have an empty tomb, right? Because those two things are not compatible. But it seems, from the history that we have, the available evidence that we do, it seems that there was an empty tomb. Now, yes, I mean, you could advance one of these 
these theories like Bart Ehrman does that, you know, followers of Jesus took away the body. Okay, it's, it's possible, right? But it's speculative. Ultimately, it's speculative. There's no proof that that happened. Um, but there is proof uh, that there was an empty tomb. Now, of course, the historical proof in proof texts uh, is not conclusive, um, but it's the best that we have. Um, and so there was an empty tomb. It really was empty. But the nature of the resurrection is also really important, right? We could potentially claim that there was some sort of like a spiritual resurrection, that Jesus was essentially a ghost. And then if the tomb wasn't empty, it wouldn't really be a problem because all we're saying is that there's a ghost walking around of Jesus. But Benedict says, let's be clear on what we're saying about the resurrection. First, the resurrection means that Jesus did not simply return to biological life. This was not like Lazarus who died and then came back to life, or the little girl who, when Jesus said, little girl, I say to you, arise, uh, woke up and had breakfast. This is not just simply a return to his previous state of biological life. The reason being, he's now no longer subject to biological death. Lazarus and that little girl were. You know, they, they had hopefully long and fulfilling lives after that, but they eventually died. They were subject to physical death. Jesus, his resurrection is different because he's no longer subject to physical death. He's actually conquered physical bodily death itself. Second, Jesus is not a ghost or, or a spirit. And this is actually true or, or proven out from the gospel accounts. So the, the gospel writers went out of their way to make sure we understood this was not the case. Um, primarily, I'm thinking through St. Thomas touching the, the wounds of Christ, right? He is physical. Um, but also uh, from Jesus cooking fish on the side of the road or asking for something to eat. Now it's true that he's not—he's uh, not subject to the same physical limitations that you and I are, which is why he can, you know, walk through walls and doors and things like that. But but let's be clear that this is a a physical resurrection, not simply a spiritual one. And then third, various encounters with the Lord were not the same thing as mystical experiences, because mystical experiences are where you basically, you know, just just like a some sort of heavy hallucinogen can do this, right? It sort of removes boundaries of space and time to give you a vision of something else. But Jesus is very clearly coming into our space and time, uh, per, you know, to give us a vision of something else as well, but but coming into our space and time rather than removing space and time from uh, the witnesses who who ate and drank and spoke with him after the resurrection. So that's really important to, to understand. And then finally, the brief epilogue here in the Ascension narrative. This one's really good too as well because um, Benedict opens the epilogue by talking about how Jesus ascends into heaven and then the disciples are filled with joy. And he says on its face, like maybe now when we think about it, Jesus, you know, triumphantly ascending to heaven, we can understand that's, that's really joyous, but put, but put your, put yourself in the shoes of one of these Jewish Christians who's following Jesus and think about what they would think their master whom they followed for two or three years has died on a cross and then three days later, he rose again. He's dined with them. He's eaten with them. He's spoken with them, talked with them for 40 days. And then he's gone. He ascends into heaven. I think I would still be thinking, what in the world? What is this? What, what is this? What does this mean? What is this? What's happening? But Benedict says, it's very clear these disciples are filled with joy. And why are they filled with joy? I think it's for a number of reasons. Uh, one, there's a missional element to what they have through the Great Commission, right? That's what Jesus gives them before he ascends. He gives them a task to go do. He hands on uh, to them the task. There's there's a very clear apostolic succession here. The high priest has now ordained his priests to go out into the world and carry on his ministry. 
um, you know, part of it, part of joy, I think, is is uh, joy is bound up with purpose, and the disciples have this purpose now. Now the apostles have this purpose. Um, second is they know that death has been conquered, and they know that they will be reunited with God uh, wherever He is. Uh, they probably since the resurrection and after the ascension, you know, everything that happens that surprises them gives gives a new understanding or sheds new light on previous things that God has said. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and he said that to them before they understood what that meant, uh, now they probably do. So they're going to they're gonna join him there. Um, and then I think the third thing is, he ascends, but the disciples know that he is always with them. So Benedict talks about this a little bit too. It's often thought of as, as um, you know, Jesus came as a baby in Nazareth and lived and walked on this earth and then was crucified, died and re- re- resurrected and ascended. And he will come again. The two comings of Jesus. But there's a third coming, and the third coming is right now. We're living it in this moment. The third coming is when Jesus is with us, present, fully, in this moment. And that's, I think, what the disciples knew. And that's why they were filled with joy. Because Jesus ascended as the victorious king to sit at the right hand of the Father. But he wasn't gone. He still remains here with us through the church, through the ministry of the apostles, which is why they'd be filled with joy. And through the sacraments. Um, and I think that's a really remarkable, it's a remarkable way to think about the world in which we live. Especially in times like this, as, as I said that one of my pastors said today, we're tempted to ask, where is God in all of this? God is here, friends. God is here. We might not see everything that he's doing. We certainly will not understand everything that he's doing, but he is here. Make no mistake about that. Our response then needs to be what the disciples did after that, to just double down on serving him, to double down on spreading the gospel. The great commission that Jesus gave the disciples just before he ascended is our great commission as well. We are members of the church. That commission was was given personally to each of the apostles, but it was also given corporately to the church writ large, and that commission now becomes ours. Our task in this era is to take the ascension mandate, the great commission, and live it out every day. That means staying close to Jesus in the sacraments. That means staying close to Christ and his church. That means telling our neighbors about Jesus. It means practicing corporal works of mercy, uh, helping our neighbors where they can. And let me tell you, friends, there is a lot of help that is needed in the midst of coronavirus. Go, sh- go grocery shopping for your elderly neighbors or your immunocompromised neighbors. Uh, donate your money to people who need money because they've been laid off from their jobs. See if you can volunteer at a local food bank or homeless shelter. Plenty of things you can do um, to help people and to show love. And even, even if you can't do any of those things, let's say you are an immunocompromised person. Let's say you have lost your job. You can unite your sufferings with those of Christ. That is, that is an act of love, uh, pouring out yourself as a living sacrifice. And even socially distancing, even self-isolation, social isolation, quarantining, all of that can be an act of love as well, trying to save those who are vulnerable from contracting this this horrible disease. So remember that, friends, in this time uh, as we live the model of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be back next week with some Holy Week programming. We have two weeks remaining in Lent. Uh, This is really a remarkable Lent given the events of COVID-19. I'm praying for you through it. I hope that you are staying close to Jesus throughout. Hopefully some of the 
discussion on today's podcast was helpful for you just in unlocking some of the mysteries of the gospel and the life of Jesus. It really is a remarkable read. I highly, highly, highly recommend this book and the whole trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth and hope that you will pick up a copy. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. And I will be back next week for more theology content. We serve an awesome God. Let us pray to him every day. Uh, and let us pray, especially in this season of Lent, for all of those affected by COVID-19, including our own selves and families. And let's pray for a holy end to the Lent. And as we approach Holy Week, uh, and especially enter the mysteries of the Easter Triduum, that God would draw us ever closer to himself so that we may be able to shine ever brighter for him to the world. God bless you. Thank you.